our practice here and also in the world, and we develop that kind of continuity that we need for practice to deepen. The mind, the body, the heart becomes quieter and quieter, of course, and mindfulness is able to reflect some deeply rooted patterns that go on in the mind and the heart. And these deeply rooted tendencies or habitual patterns are called in the Buddhist teaching uh, the three roots of evil or the three roots of suffering. And they are greed, hatred, and delusion. And they're called such because when they're not recognized, when we're not mindful of them, they create suffering in the moment and in the long range, a lot of suffering also because of the acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion. So as we practice, there begins to unravel layers and layers of unacknowledged pain. And a lot of times, to me, it feels like there is this deep unfolding or folds that were closed are opening that begin to release uh, uh, feelings of suffering, feelings of pain, um, memories, uh, experiences that were kind of not fully experienced before, that have long been hidden. And the light of mindfulness begins to shine on them. And so they, became, they become known what has been uh, deep down hidden, what has been maybe even unknown for a long time becomes known. I love this um, saying by Carl Jung. This kept me uh, opening and opening and having more and more courage to open when I uh, read this and heard this many years ago. He said, enlightenment doesn't mean envisioning bodies of light. It is making the darkness known. And this is the, one of the most important steps that we take in our practice is making what's deep down, what's uh, formerly unknown, or what has been hidden or pushed aside, making that known. It says that, it is said that ignorance is the nourishment of suffering. Ignoring what's happening is the nourishment of suffering. So by bringing mindfulness to all of our experiences, we begin to dispel suffering by first dispelling this ignoring, this ignorance. So tonight I'd like to talk about one of those roots of suffering, greed, craving, attachment, desire. It's a vast, vast subject. And in this hour long, I'm only able to get uh, a tiny bit of it in. Um, And I'll cover what I can. But I know it's so important because so much of our suffering and so much of our life that we're not open to hinges on on this one fact, on this one way, this one habit pattern that we have, um, desire, uh, 
craving, attachment. So it's important to illuminate whatever we can of this. What happens when we don't understand its nature is that it entraps us. It imprisons us. And it pushes and pulls us in our life so that um, it becomes like the force that uh, leads us in our life. But once it becomes more, we become more knowledgeable of the terrain of desire, uh, the terrain of attachment, the inner terrain, the outer terrain of craving, it less and less uh, imprisons us. So the other evening, um, there was a talk on the Four Noble Truths, the, the truth of suffering, which is, the Buddha said, to be understood, the truth of the origin of suffering, which is to be relinquished, and this origin of suffering is attachment, the truth of cessation of suffering, which is to be realized, and the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering, and that is the Eightfold Noble Path, which will begin to speak more about in the upcoming days. So when the Buddha was asked, what is the origin of suffering? His answer was, it is craving. And from the Dhammapada, there is a quote by the Buddha that goes like this, from craving springs grief, from craving springs fear. For her who is wholly free from from craving, there is no grief, there is no fear. Craving, desire, leads us to a lot of complication, a lot of suffering in our lives, and and we spread that around in the world. Um, as I was doing my research on this, it there was so much that was in the various texts that it was really hard to put together what's important here, what can we take in so that we can bring more light on the subject so that we can bring more mindfulness to this area and not shy away from it, not put it aside. So um, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. talks about the nine things that are rooted in craving. I'd like to read that. The Buddha said, Monks, I shall teach you nine things rooted in craving. Listen and attend carefully. What are the nine things rooted in craving? Because of craving, there is pursuit. Because of pursuit, there is acquisition. Because of acquisition, there is decision. Because of decision, there is desire and lust. Because of desire and lust, there is selfish tenacity. Because of selfish tenacity, there is possessiveness. Because of possessiveness, there is avarice. Because of avarice, there is concern for protection. And for the sake of protection, there is the seizing of cudgels and weapons and various evil, unwholesome things such as quarrels, strife, dissension, and offensive talk, slander, and lies. 
These are the nine things rooted in craving. So very succinct, very clear, how just from that one uh, misunderstanding or not knowing or unmindfulness of craving, so many things that cause suffering can come up in our lives. We live in a world that has powerful, very deep and wide occurrence in this stream of life that we live in. Pleasant experiences always seducing our senses, giving rise to desire when we're not mindful, desire and craving for things that, if we don't look carefully, can lead to a lot of suffering. The Buddha said, those died in lust, in craving, wrapped in ignorance, will never discern this abstruse dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream. It's subtle, it's deep, difficult to see. One time, uh, a colleague and disciple of the Buddha, uh, this is someone the Buddha had studied with, Ajita, asked him, what is it? that smothers the world? What makes the world hard to see? What would you say pollutes the world? And what threatens it most? And the Buddha answered, it is ignorance that smothers the world. It is carelessness and greed that make the world invisible. The hunger of desire pollutes the world. And the fear of the pain of suffering threatens it. So in our practice, it's so important to take a good, careful look at this very thing which pushes and pulls us in our life. We're often, so often, seduced by the object of our desire, the objects of our desire. Um, And very little uh, of my own practice is turned towards the feeling, the actual subjective experience of desire, of craving, of clinging. So it's, it was, it's been really important for me to take a look at this as a topic. It's such a heavy topic that I wanted to start with something a little lighter, subjectively lighter, as I looked through the teachings and the commentaries about this through the years of my practice and study. I'd come across a commentary on the Buddhist teachings that some of you may have heard from the Vasudhimaga, The Path of Purification, which was written by a monk about 500 years after the death of the Buddha. His name was Bodhagosha, and he described three personality types or temperaments that are fueled by the various three roots of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's said that each one of us have a combination of all of these uh, tendencies of greed, of hatred, of delusion, but one of them would stand out the most. One of them we see in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, kind of predominate the others. So when I was quite young in the Dhamma, I asked Manindraji, one of our teachers, well, uh, which one of these am I, the greedy type, the aversive type, or the deluded type? And at first, you know, he answered, well, you're very balanced. And I thought, well, 
you know, I kind of thought that was a, a nice answer, but he said, You're, you've got all three in, in balance. But mostly, you know, it's, it's the greedy type. And the greedy type is always looking for pleasant experience. And, well, that's me. And it's really easy to tell uh, when, if we go somewhere. So Steve, being the aversive type, if you haven't noticed yet... Um, it's okay, he says I can do this. So if we go somewhere, say we go to a restaurant or say we, you know, we have to go someplace to stay, as soon as we get in the restaurant or a place to stay, I'm always looking for the best place for us to sit or in particular for me to sit or to be. And so um, I, you know... that's where my radar is, you know, like where should I go that's going to be the most pleasant, the view, et cetera, and uh, comfortable chairs. And Steve, he doesn't act out his aversion so much in this area, in this area, but (laughs) (laughs) he can tell you plenty of stories on me. But anyway... um, He'll sometimes he'll say he doesn't want to sit there, or he doesn't like a particular area, or can he can see that something is a little bit off about being, you know, in that part of the hotel. So we're, you know, I kind of rely on him for things like that. Um, he <laughs> greedy type is, you know, always kind of seeing the the positive outlook of things. And um, Steve calls himself a realist, you know, while I'm, I'm just always looking for something good about the situation. And so both of us are, you know, it's good for both of us to be together. Uh, <laughs> we point out things about each other um, that help us awaken to the fact of what our tendency is towards. And um, so the other day, it was kind of interesting. You know, I was sort of getting the idea to give this talk on attachment. And uh, we were walking out to the car, and guys turned to me and said, there are, you know, four of us. We live right next door to each other. And guy said, Kamala, how is it to be the greedy type the only one among, you know, five of us and the rest of the four are aversive types. <laughs> and I, I thought about that and I thought, no wonder I miss Joseph. You know, Joseph... <laughs> because Joseph is my compadre. You know, he's the, uh, the other greedy type in the whole group. And so we're always the ones saying, isn't this nice? Doesn't this taste good? Let's go find something pleasant to do, you know. So, of course, my compadres here also do that. Um, We have a lot of fun doing that. So, um, a greedy type of a person um, is not so comfortable opening to the unpleasant. When the unpleasant arises... Um, there is this, you know, constant looking for the pleasant. So that, like in retreat for me, 
when there's unpleasant feelings in the body, sensations in the body, or something unpleasant going on in the mind, you know, the mind is, is seeking something else. So, oh, maybe I should get up and go have a cup of tea now. You know, I just kind of um, give up easily on opening to the unpleasant. So I, I notice that a lot about my own practice. It says that greed seeks out sensual pleasures as the object. You know, so whatever it can, whatever it can experience as pleasant, that's what this greed is always seeking for. It seeks out pleasant feelings um, in the experience of those objects. And the, the radar of a sensual type, I like that uh, term sensual type instead of greedy type, um, is the radar that it's always attuned to. So this was pointed out to me a few years ago when Viranyani and I were in the Sagain Hills in Upper Burma. And so um, Viranyani is another one of my colleagues that's the aversive type, um, self-proclaimed, so I think I can say that. And so, <laughs> so here we are walking along, and um, I notice, you know, all the beauty of the Sagain Hills, all the, there are a thousand monasteries and nunneries, and I love the feeling of being around monks and nuns and seeing them, seeing the dedication to the Dharma and uh, just the beauty of that in the area. And if, um, we were walking down this place, uh, road one time, and um, I was just saying, look how beautiful that is to uh, Viranyani. Look, look how beautiful these nuns are walking down the road. And look at this monastery. And oh, I'm so happy to be here. And, and she turns and she says, haven't you noticed that big uh, thing on the hill there? And I said, what big thing on the hill? And she said, Kamala, you haven't noticed that big structure is this radar tower on the hill. And I said, no. I haven't. She said, come, let's go look. And it was right, you know, I took a few steps. It was right there, clearly to be seen. And we had been there probably 10 days or maybe two weeks, and I had not seen that. The the eye just would veer away from that, and it would look at the shining peaks of the, you know, monastery temples and all of that. And so... You know, of course, that was the first thing that Viranyani saw, but, or one of the first things. So, well, I'm glad, you know, it, 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 those things get pointed out to me because I want, you know, my whole mind to open, not just veer towards what's pleasant. So that's the limitation of the, you know, greed type or the sensual type. Um, the sensual or greedy type will see the goodness in a person quite easily, but not the limitations of a person. And so this, um, you know, it's helpful to be around people who have that kind of sharp mind. Uh, We have this kind of rosy outlook. As I said before, Steve calls himself a realist, but he says that I'm realistically, unrealistically optimistic sometimes. But that unrealistic optimism in some ways is a lot of faith and it gets us where we need to go. So 
there is um, in the Vasudhi Maga, I wanted to read to you some passages from there that help us to uh, understand and to see some of the characteristics of the greed type. But it also mentions the other types, and I know if I don't read the other types, there'll be a lot of um, notes on the board. So <laughs> I think I'll, I'll just read it all. So one of the, the greedy temperament and all the others will be known by their posture. One of the greedy temperament is walking in his or her usual manner, walking carefully, putting her foot down slowly, putting it down evenly, lifting it up evenly, and his step is springy. One of hating temperament or aversive temperament walks as though he were digging with the points of his feet, puts his foot down quickly, lifts it quickly, and his step is dragging along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, <laughs> puts his foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and his step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. I'm sure Bodhagosha was greedy type because it's always in these nice terms, you know. No wonder I like to read it. So, um, confident and graceful. One of aversive temperament is rigid. That of deluded temperament is muddled. Likewise in sitting, one of greedy temperaments uh, spread in, in sleeping spreads her bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing her limbs, and sleeps in a confident manner. When awoken, instead of getting up quickly, she gives her answer slowly, um, as though doubtful. One of hating or aversive temperament spreads his bed hastily anyhow. With his body flung down, he sleeps with a scowl. When awoken, gets up quickly and answers as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads his bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward. With body sprawling. When awoken, he gets up slowly saying, Huh? <laughs> See what else? Eating. One of greedy temperament likes eating rich, sweet food. When eating, he makes a round lump, not too big, and eats unhurriedly, savoring the various tastes. He enjoys eating something good. One of aversive temperament likes eating rough, sour food. When eating, he makes a lump that fills his mouth, and he eats hurriedly without savoring the taste. He is aggrieved when he gets something not good. Never mind. One of deluded temperament has no settled choice. When eating, he makes a small, unrounded lump, and he eats it, drops it as he drops bits into his dish, smearing his face with his mind astray, thinking of this and that. <sighs> okay. I think that's enough. <laughs> so, 
But I'd like to say something about the transformation of these to the other states because a lot of times we mention the, the three types, but there's really six types, the transformed types from the greedy temperament in spiritual practice. With our spiritual practice, this is transformed to uh, unshakable faith, a faith kind of temperament. And that is because whereas greed seeks out sense pleasures with delusion, pleasures that often by hanging on to them lead to suffering, faith seeks out virtues, seeks out goodness. So both of these, uh, faith and attachment or greed, have the same quality of seeking. One seeks with delusion, not knowing that it leads to suffering, and one seeks with wisdom towards the end of suffering. So, of course, in this faith type, it's the um, kind of wanting or the seeking that seeks peace, that seeks to understand life more deeply, Um, the cultivation of generosity, that seeks good friends, that seeks hearing the Dhamma, so hearing the truth and applying it. And so sometimes we have this wrong understanding about wanting or seeking, and there's some very subtle ways that these are acted out for the good of ourselves and for the good of all beings. So this is the part that has to do with seeking, the inclining of the mind, the aspiring breathing life into our, uh, our practice, aspiring towards goodness. It's said that aversion is transformed to understanding, whereas aversion with ignorance seeks out unreal faults in people or in conditions. Aver- uh, understanding, this is with wisdom, sees the real limitations of beings in in that realm with compassion and tries to work towards the end of suffering with it. So there there may be more. We're trying to get a tape on the delusion, the wonderful Dhamma talk that Sharon gave. So more about that. So coming back to just this topic of craving or greed, Desire. It's a vast landscape with many intensities to it. Just the intensity in the subtlest form um, of the seeking, the inclining the mind towards the goodness. You know, this, this can be seeking something wholesome. But it's the seeking what is unwholesome that causes suffering that this has to do with. It's said that greed is like a magnet that drags to it anything that comes near. And it does this through the eye door, wanting beautiful sights, through the ear door, wanting beautiful or pleasant sounds, through the tongue door, wanting tastes that are pleasant, through the mind door, wanting things that can be thought about that cause you know some pleasantness, through the body door, pleasant touch, all the five senses uh, of the body and the mind door, basically. It's said that the function of greed is sticking, you know, sticking this, uh, in, in a way, sticking this greed to the pleasant 
experience of that object. It's manifested as not giving up, tenacious. It feels like a Velcro mind, you know, at that moment. It just, you know, if you try to take it apart or, it, it, you know, try to stand back from it, it's very difficult. It's, it's like a magnet or like Velcro. One form of greed, uh, when the form of greed is intensified, it's called craving or tanha. And this is described as a thirst or hunger for excitement. Sometimes in the text, it's the fever of insatiable longing. There's an image in many of the descriptions of this in the text as one of a hungry ghost with a huge, huge belly and a pinhole mouth. You know, that just has to keep feeding and feeding and feeding with... uh, the objects of desire, always looking for something to fill this huge belly up with something. So this hunger, this kind of unsatiable longing, this hunger, one of the first ways that I began to um, look at this in my own practice was when I first did the eight precepts when I went to a retreat where everybody was doing the eight precepts. It was a month-long retreat. And so um, there was this, you know, uh, hunger that kept coming. And, of course, it's some in getting used to it, at first it was really the hunger of the body because it was just so used to eating something. And then after a while I realized it wasn't the hunger of the body. It was this hunger of the mind, It was this desire, just looking for food, wanting to fill, you know, this, to satiate this hunger. Didn't have anything to do with the body needing food at this point. It was a few weeks into the retreat. And so I, I came to look at it because here I had taken the precepts, you know, and, um, I just was so filled with this desire to eat something. And this always gets me, you know, being the greedy type, you know, just looking for pleasant experience. But smelling something uh, really um, pleasant coming out of the kitchen. And it was a smell of chocolate. And so right away, you know, oh, I knew it was chocolate chip cookies or something like that. And so just following that, uh, to the kitchen, and <laughs> and the and the cookies were baking there in the kitchen, and really just seeing my hand, you know, go out to open the oven to see, you know. So it's that kind of reaching out, that kind of reaching forward, and that's a lot of how it's described: how tanha or craving, this reaching out. So I actually did that, reach out, you know, to the oven to, uh, to see, is this right? Is it chocolate chip cookies? And so did that, reach out, open up, and saw, oh, yeah, chocolate chip cookies, you know. And then somehow remembering, oh, I took the precepts, you know. Should I take, should I wait and come back later and take one? And, um, well, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but... 
I did actually get one later on by looking so pathetic that I, <laughs> somebody had to o- offer me one. But um, it was that reaching out, you know, for, for it. And that is the tanha, the kind of reaching out for it. And then grasping to fill up that desire. And later on, as I worked more with this in my own practice, I came to see that um, if I turned the attention away from the object of desire, the physical object of desire, which at that moment I thought was obviously the cookie, or whatever it is in my practice, and turned towards what's happening in here, towards sometimes the experience of pleasant feeling, Sometimes the gross experience of wanting itself, of knowing whatever is most predominant in that moment. And it's so hard to do that, to turn the attention away from the object of desire, the physical object of desire, and turn it towards what's going on inside. And that's what our practice asks us to do, to feel that desire, to feel that craving, to feel that tanha, that hunger, that desire hunger. Um, It's said that tanha is like a thief groping in the dark. It's the actual reaching out. It's really not reaching out for the object itself, but for the pleasant experience in the object. It's said that because of tanha, there is grasping. This grasping or clinging is called upadana. So there's tanha. And then there's a more intensified experience called clinging or upadana. It's actually seizing the object that it was reaching out for. And the function of upadana is not to release. So the function of upadana is to hold on even when it's painful. So how is that that related to us in our life and our practice? So it's it's like, you know, falling in love when we, we have this object that the mind is going out to and we're, you know, we're kind of, it's almost like we're just in love with love itself. So how many times have... We've been at a retreat, and you know what we call a, the pasana romance comes up, and we're, we actually don't know what the person even looks like. Maybe we just see the person's shoes, and all of a sudden there's a whole story around that person. And so for me, you know, early on in, in my own life, it was like the, all the chatter in the mind starts going, and what we fall in love with is a possibility of that lovely life, you know, that white picket fence, that everything's perfect, um, you know, chocolate cookies baking in the oven. <laughs> and um, then, you know, when you wake up to it all, then you really see you're going to therapy, you know. <laughs> then, <laughs> The divorce comes later on. So you can see when we wake up to the whole thing, you see what it leads to. And so we have to, but when we don't wake up, we hold on even when it's painful. So it can drive you crazy, this way of um, clinging, of 
holding on to the object. It feels like nothing can stop it. It carries this tremendous momentum and creates tremendous suffering in one's life, um, a kind of very destructive suffering. And so this is um, a poem that's actually named Destruction by Joanne Kiger. And it's really about the tremendous momentum of wanting, of craving. This is about a bear wanting to get in a cabin. So she describes, first of all, do you remember the way a bear goes through a cabin when nobody is home? He goes through the front door. I mean, he actually goes through it. Then he takes the cupboard off the wall and eats a can of lard. He eats all the apples, limes, dates, bottled decaffeinated coffee, 35 pounds of granola. The asparagus uh, and the soap cans fall to the floor. Yum. He chomps up the Norwegian crackers stuffed, uh, stu- stacked for the winter and the bouillon cubes, salt, pepper, paprika, garlic, onions, and potatoes. He rips the green Tara poster from the wall. He tries the Coleman mustard, spills the ink, tracks all the flour around, goes upstairs and takes a shit. (laughs) Excuse my English. He rips open the waterbed and eats the incense and drinks all the perfume. He knocks over the Japanese tansu and the Persian miniature of a man on horseback watching a woman bathing. He knocks over all the magazines and uh, Planet Drum, Northern Mist, she goes on to say what they are, and uh, then hops into the waterbed and it starts oozing a mess. He goes downstairs and out the back wall. He keeps going for a long way and finds a good cave to sleep it all off in. Luckily, he ate the whole medicine cabinet, including the stash of LSD, peyote, psilocybin, benzedrine, valium, and aspirin. (laughs) That kind of a momentum is what this tanha and upadana feels like, that very strong self-destruction, really. It feels like that. It says that there are six sense spaces that are soil for craving craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for odors, for tastes, tactile objects, mental phenomena. I mentioned this briefly earlier. Craving is looking for pleasant experience in those objects. In fact, it is said that pleasant experience is a proximate cause for craving to arise. I remember one time um, another thing about food here at retreat it uh, when I was probably about fifteen more years ago, I was sitting and I was um, it was the last sitting was over, and I went to my room in the Catskills and uh, you know your sense of smell gets really acute i mean you can you can just smell you know that guy 's maple syrup down the street almost when you 're walking by and so this uh, smell arose, 
And previous to that, you know, the whole practice had gotten quiet and the momentum and the continuity had brought on some good concentration and stillness of mind so that various objects could be seen very clearly, just noticing and seeing how they come and go. And so when this smelling arose, you know, just caught off guard, and the pleasant, of course, in in, in retrospect, I could see it, but not at those moments. It was just no mindfulness, you know. An odor arose, pleasant experience because of that odor arose, and then just seeing, oh, this is popcorn. And so just in thinking about that popcorn, the craving for the understanding that it was popcorn and the smell, it started getting attached to, you know, the wanting for it. And so I could see, you know, I could see that it was all going to go to pot, my practice, that I was... But there's strong delusion when craving is there. And that delusion says, it'll be okay. You know, you, you can go downstairs and see what's cooking. And, and just keep your mindfulness. But no, you know, we don't. We just, it's, we lose it because delusion is so strong and mindfulness just gets dropped. So went downstairs, went to look in the dining room. Any popcorn? No. Should I go in the kitchen? You know, not too many people around to go in the, you know, through the, where the wash dishes and kind of peek in. Anybody, any popcorn there? You know, that maybe um, I didn't take those precepts today, you know. (laughs) See, so, but no, luckily, you know, there was some thought of, no, got to get, start getting mindful again. But I realized when I looked back on my own mind that a lot had, too much had gone loose already. And it was so hard to come back to just the practice when you follow these cravings out and when you act them out, it's just so hard to get things rolling again in the same way. There's such strong delusion that, you know, it's all going to be okay. But, yeah, we can work back to it, but it's disappointing sometimes. So it just I urge you to, to watch what's going on. So that clinging is, I've got to have it, and that... Uh, then we grasp onto it and we hold on to it unless there is mindfulness somewhere along the way in the um, actually in the webster's dictionary it said that this clinging is strong emotional attachment and it's adhering to as if glued that's part of what it said to hold on tenaciously because Tanha is not seen, uh, or, um, you know, just craving is not seen, clinging arises. So because of Tanha, unseen, being unmindful, Upadana arises, or clinging arises. So what does it feel like? Again, when one turns the attention to that feeling inside of clinging or craving or greed or whatever it is. You don't have to split hairs on this and trying to figure out what's going on here. When you turn to that feeling of just the mind wanting something, you know, it feels like pure agitation. And it, it, 
it's really easy when you turn your mind to that agitation to let go of the object because it's so unpleasant now, this feeling of agitation. But when we're unmindful, that agitation wants to stop. And so it goes after something, you know, desire goes after something so that that agitation will stop. So it goes after the pleasant. This is what happens in the course of things. It goes after the pleasant. It gets satisfied. And then what happens is there that um, pattern gets deeper. But every time there's mindfulness uh, around that pattern, then that gets short-circuited. That pattern does not dig those deep grooves into the mind. So there's this um, powerful sermon called the Fire Sermon that I want to read. Because when I heard this sermon once, I really, at that time in my practice, really related to the burning feeling, not just the agitation, but to the burning feeling in the heart, in the mind, that comes along with um, with uh, this sense of wanting, of craving. So let me read that to you. One of the most powerful sermons of the Buddha. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Gaya, at Gaya's head, together with a thousand monks. There the Blessed One addressed the monks in this way. Monks, all is burning. And what monks is the all that is burning? Eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion, burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair, I say. And then he goes on to all the other sense doors, including the mind. So just one more. The ear is burning, the mind is burning, and whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion, burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. That can be the actual subjective experience sometimes. This kind of burning that accompanies the the wanting, this kind of agitation, kind of fire in the mind that's burning up uh, one's wisdom, you know, kind of burning it down. So there's longing, there's loneliness, there's this covetousness, this envious kind of desire, various ways that we experience wanting. Wanting, of course, suggests lack of something. There's lusting, there's this avarice or holding on to, this stinginess with what is already, uh, what we already have. 
It is said that there are four bases of clinging. You know, there are six um, six things of that the mind craves, the five sense doors and the mind. But there are four bases of clinging. There's a clinging to rites and rituals with the wrong view that they will liberate us. There's a clinging to views and opinions. This is very subtle. But sometimes we can have this self-righteous you know, attachment to our way of looking at things, our way of seeing things. And maybe it's clearly okay, it's clearly clear that this is the, the right way. But sometimes added on to that is very strong attachment to it. And that isn't needed. There's clinging to sense objects, which spoke about in craving. There's clinging to the idea of self, not seeing the conditionality of all of life, which was spoken about as anatta. So with regard to that, clinging to the idea of self, not seeing the conditionality of all of life, in one of the suttas, the Buddha was asked, who craves? And the Buddha answered, that's not a valid question. Um, Due to what condition does craving arise would be the valid question, said the Buddha. So this is all about conditionality. Due to what condition does craving arise would be the valid question. To this the valid answer would be, with feeling as condition, craving arises. With craving as condition, clinging arises. Such is the origin of the whole mass of suffering. So just in this very, um, you know, limited area, one can see from feeling, craving comes. From craving, clinging can come. And from this whole um, unseen, unmindfulness around this, the whole mass of suffering can be developed. So what are the opposing or the diminishing forces of, of this craving. The first one is sometimes we don't realize, think about so much, is generosity. Dana, the practice of generosity. One of our teachers, Utejaniya, from Burma says, generosity is giving away our greed. You know, it's, it's really letting go of what some of the things that we may hang on to, our time, our energy, our, our material resources. And so in that moment of letting go of that, in that moment of giving, there is this recondition, deconditioning of greed. And there is this reconditioning of an open mind, of a mind that's able to give, to offer. Um, also, the, the practice of um, being content with what, ha- what one has. I was in a, a friend of mine, her home one time, and um, she's a, uh, Jewish, and there's this one saying in, in her tradition, who is rich? It was a beautiful painting on the wall. Who is rich? And I couldn't read the rest, and she said, um, one who is content 
with one's portion. And at first I said, I thought she said Portia. But <laughs> then I, oh yeah, that wouldn't be true. Yeah, being the greedy type, that's where my mind would go to. But being content with one's portion, you know, so contentment, um, as I would hear uh, one of our teachers say to me, contentment is the greatest happiness, just being content with how things are. So another way is restraint. Restraint through sila. You know, really paying attention to sila, to the forces of non-harming that uh, bring harmony to our life, our inner life, our outer life, not acting out transgressive behavior through our words, through our actions. Because, um, you know, this is... uh, what we're giving there is we're giving safety. It's sort of a way of giving something to others. It's sort of a generosity. We're giving safety to others. And, um, you know, it's not just about me, not just about mine, not just about who I am. It's, you know, thinking of others also. Restraint uh, for acting out our greed. I found in my... um, studying travels, uh, this uh, story about a snake that the Buddha told. And it has to do with restraint and, and seeing clearly what's going on. And the Buddha said, suppose there were a deadly poisonous snake and a woman or man who wanted to live and not to die, um, wanted, uh, and he could get... He, he wanted to, uh, you know, go and touch the snake. Um, so what do you think, he said, would... Uh, let me see. Let me get this strained out. So would that man give that deadly poisonous snake his hand or his thumb, knowing that he would be bitten by that snake? And so that's how it is when we're around something that's going to cause suffering to ourselves or to others. We see that there can be some poison in there, getting close to it, getting near to it. So we don't reach out. We don't go near. We, we refrain from, from doing anything that will cause harm to ourselves and to others. So when one practices restraint, Um, There's having this understanding that not acting out our desires can be the cause of happiness, can be the cause of harmony. So another way of, um, of opposing or diminishing the forces of this, uh, this craving, this desire is in the practice of samadhi, collecting the mind, keeping the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion out at bay. So we know when we do our practice and we calm the mind, and the mind is um, collected, and it, the force field is so strong of because we're bringing our attention over and over again to either one object or changing objects, the force field is so strong 
that greed is far away. And sometimes we feel, um, some of you have pointed out in your own practice, that there can be seen. There's an absence of wanting. There's an absence, can see the absence of aversion sometimes. So that, that can be seen clearly in your practice. The samadhi, collecting the mind, practicing that, um, sila and samadhi, so that this collection, this force field of the mind keeps that greed at bay. But the deepest way of uh, even uprooting the latent tendencies of greed and all the uh, forces that come with greed, this craving and clinging, is to uh, practice panya, to open to understanding the wisdom of seeing things as they are. And this is what we're doing here in our practice of vipassana. And through this practice here on retreat, all of those practices are being fulfilled, sila, samadhi, and panya. Bit by bit, we're opening to seeing what is the cause of suffering, what is the cause of happiness, what practices can we do that lead towards happiness and peace. And so this whole area of greed, craving, clinging, we open to and come to bring our attention to more and more strongly. I'd just like to end with um, this saying from Achan Buddhadasa, which actually is, he actually is quoting the Buddha as well. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine, not taking things to be self, not taking things as belonging to self. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Let's sit for a moment. When he has heard that nothing is worth clinging to, she directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Contemplating this, he does not cling to anything. What has to be done is done. There is no more suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.